It is definitely good to be gathered together in the presence of God that we might hear his word and not only hear his word, but hear it preached. And so to that end, if you would, uh, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. This morning we have the first three verses of the chapter before us. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, as we're continuing to make our way through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. So let's uh, give our attention to the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that you feed us, for we are your hungry children, and you give us Christ, the manna from heaven. And in so giving us this bread of life, O Lord, you satiate our hunger. We pray, O Lord, that you would feed us and feed us yet, that you would nourish us, that you would bring glory to your name, and that you would conform us more and more to the image of your Son. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Of all of the sports that exist, I think running is perhaps one of my favorites. Now, maybe that's because I run, so maybe I'm a little bit biased. But nevertheless, it's a simple sport, and it requires very little equipment. A pair of running shoes, uh, some socks, a pair of shorts, and a t-shirt in most cases, of course, unless maybe you're running in extreme cold weather. I like running, I think, because it's not a team-dependent sport. The degree of success or failure for the runner rests entirely upon his or her will uh, to succeed. How fast are you going to run? How much are you going to push your body? How much pain are you willing to endure? Mind you, not the pain of injury, but rather the pain of striving. Unlike many sports that we play today, whether it's football, baseball, tennis, or golf, running has existed for millennia. And the lessons that we can learn from it are spread throughout all of the literature of the ancient world, including here in the book of Hebrews. The author appeals to this imagery of running a race, and he applies it to the Christian life. And what he ultimately encourages us to do is for us as Christians to run our races well. And so what we want to do is we want to see first what he has to say about the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us all, we can say, in the great arena of the Christian life. Secondly, he gives us instruction as to how we should run our race. It's important. We can't meander or flander, uh, fl- flounder about. And then third and finally, he gives us, if you will, the goal and the source of the power that we must draw upon in the midst of our race, which is looking to Jesus. So we want to think about the cloud of witnesses, how we run the race secondly, and then third and finally, looking to Jesus. 
So as we first turn the corner and we come now to this uh, beginning of the 12th chapter, we need to note that everything that has gone before, especially in the 11th chapter, leads us to this particular point. Beginning in verse 12, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, You see, the whole reason that he's been taking us through this great hall of faith with all of these Old Testament saints uh, leads to this point. He hasn't just simply reminisced for the sake of reminiscing or telling us some quaint stories about the Old Testament, uh, but rather we have to think about everything that he has said about the nature of the faith of the Old Testament saints to whom he's pointed. Think, for example, about the very nature of faith itself, as he's explained in chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so he stressed that, for example, with Noah in chapter 11, verse, uh, sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter 11, verse 7, when God warned Noah of the coming flood, Noah couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. You know, imagine if we were to say everything that you see around you is soon going to be flooded with water so much so that no one will be able to live. You would have to trust if that word came from God that it was true, you would have to believe it apart from being able to see it. Apart from being able to see it. Noah could not see the flood and yet he believed the word of God. The author points us to courage and faith. For example, in verse 8, where he says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go into a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. That calls for great courage and trusting in the word of God. That's something that I suspect all of us struggle with. I don't have that kind of courage, say, for example, when it comes to eating. What do you mean? Uh, I always ask my wife, and this drives her bananas, uh, is if I'm eating breakfast, what's for lunch? She's like, we haven't gotten to lunch yet. It's like, well, I just want to know. I want to anticipate. I want to know what's coming. And then we get to lunch, and I say, well, what's for dinner? And she's like, slow down. I'll get to it when I get to it. You know, some people, you know, make their whole meal plan for the week, and you can see what's coming. I want to know what's coming. My kids are that way. Where are we going? Just get in the car. Well, Dad, where are we going? I'll tell you later. I want to know. Well, I don't want to tell you. And yet here, God says, go. And Abraham didn't know where he was going. But he had the courage and trust in the word of God by faith to go and to simply march out, not knowing where he was going. Last time we looked at the the ending of chapter 11, where we saw faith in times of plenty and in want. By faith, verse 23 of chapter 11, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Here, Moses' parents were in a time of want. It was a time of peril. It was a time of danger. And yet they could see in the birth of their child that God was going to do something through their son, through Moses. And so in spite of the danger, 
in spite of what we can say, this time of want, it was not a time of blessing, it was a time of trial, they nevertheless believe. And so what the author here says now at the beginning of the 12th chapter is that all of these Old Testament saints ran their races and they ran them well. But it's not that these saints now have died and uh, they have passed into the sands of the hourglass of history. Rather, the author is saying, all of these Old Testament saints to whom I have just drawn your attention, they all now stand before the throne of God, whether it's Abel, whether it's Noah, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses and his parents, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. They're all gathered before the throne of God. And at this present moment, they worship God. They worship the living God. But their attention is not merely focused upon God, but also upon God's glory in the creation and in the Son's work of redemption. And so, in other words, there's a great cloud of witnesses that is gathered about, if we can say, the arena of the creation. And they are watching God's people. They are watching you as God's glory is unfurled in your lives. As God manifests his wisdom, his power, and his mercy in his people, they are gathered about and they are cheering. They are praising God. As the book of Revelation describes it, it's as the sound of many rushing waters. You know, I've, I've described this before that I once had the opportunity to go to a National League Championship Series where uh, the Braves won in Game 7. And the, the roar of the crowd was absolutely deafening. It was thunderous. That's the type of praise that I suspect thunders from heaven as the saints are gathered around the arena of the creation as they behold the glory of God as he reveals it in the lives of his saints. I suspect it's a lot like the thunder of a, of a Mississippi State game or an Ole Miss game. You choose whichever team is your favorite. One basketball player, professional basketball player, said, yes, it's true, I love the roar of the crowd. When the fans are with you, their voices come together in a big, booming rush of sound that you can actually feel in your body almost like a wave that lifts you and carries you past your own limits. How many times have sports announcers talked about, say, the sixth man on the team if you're watching basketball, or the, the, the twelfth man on the team if you're watching football? In other words, if you've got home field advantage and that crowd is cheering for you, that can be a source of energy it can be a source of motivation, so much so that as that basketball player describes it, you can feel, you can feel the thunderous cheering in your body. And so what I think the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us here is that this great cloud of witnesses, some of whom, whom he's mentioned here in the 11th chapter, they're not merely passive observers. They're not merely passive observers. 
You know, I've done this before and I suspect it's been utterly discouraging to the musician that I'm watching. But I'm kind of a laid back musician appreciationist. You know, if I've gone to a concert and I was, it, was, uh, it was inside, uh, you know, an establishment where you could sit down and there were chairs and what have you. And people were moving, they were rocking, they were clapping. And I was just sitting there, tapping my finger. I was having a good time. But I was kind of passive. I'm a passive observer, a passive listener. Part of it is, is because I don't think I can move multiple parts of my body in rhythm at the same time. It's like you can get a finger... Or you can get a toe, (laughs) but not a finger and a toe. Those two won't work together. It's kind of odd that way. That's just the way God wired me, right? I'm kind of passive. That's not the way these Old Testament saints are as they're gathered about the throne of God, as they're gathered in the arena. Not only are they cheering, if you will, with praises for our triune God as they watch his glory unfurl, but their faith still testifies and echoes to the truths of the gospel and of the glories of our triune God to this day. Abel was murdered long ago, and yet his faith in Christ still cries out. Abraham and Sarah are long dead, yet their faith in God's promise echoes into eternity. The faith of all of God's saints testifies to God's faithfulness in Christ and the gift of grace that comes through the Spirit, but also for our need to persevere. It's as if they're saying, God is great, God is faithful. Persevere, continue, run your race. And it's in this sense, I think, that their cheers of praise for our triune God and his work in us are all about us if we have the ears of faith to listen. It's like I can remember, as my middle son would say, back in the 1900s, when I would run, I would run triathlons. It's before we had kids, so it's before, it's when I had time, free time. I don't know what free time is anymore. But as I, as I was running this triathlon, I, 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 was, uh, I had to swim. So you had to run into the ocean. It was down here on the Panhandle in Pensacola. Ran in the ocean, swam, and you had to swim a third of a mile. You had to go out about, I don't know, 40, 50 feet, or maybe it was 25 yards, something like that. Went out, swam, and then as you came back in, I, I was... It's, I don't know if it was the jolt of adrenaline as you take off, because you take off in a pack... And, and, and as a horde of people go into the water, you're doing everything you can to make sure you don't get kicked and punched from other people swimming. And so there's just this rush of adrenaline. And as I came out of the water, it's a race, so you're trying to move quickly. And I was kind of stumbling because I was all of a sudden pretty exhausted from this swim. And as I came up, running up onto the beach, there were all of these people there. I have no idea who they were. They were there cheering They were cheering the competitors. And I don't know, I was somewhere near, you know, the rear third. So it's not like I was in any way competitive. It's not like I was near the front that they had reason to cheer. But they they were still cheering. And it gave me some encouragement. It made me think, maybe I won't die. (laughs) Maybe I can do this. And I thought, all right, tighten up. Pick up your, 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 your arms and, and look like you're not as tired as you feel. And so, you know, I went on. Their cheering encouraged me. 
This great cloud of witnesses is cheering us on, saying, God is faithful. Persevere. Look to his promises in Christ. But secondly, we have to note that the author also gives us some instruction about how we are to run. We run our race, and how we run it can make all the difference in the world. He says in the latter half of verse 1, But uh, let us lay aside uh, every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, when a runner competes, when a runner competes, there's a principle that he or she has to take into consideration, and it's this simple little maxim. Ounces turn into pounds. Ounces turn into pounds. In other words, say over the course of a marathon, 26.2 miles, I think it is, over the course of a marathon, the lightest pieces of equipment, whether it's your shoes, whether it's your clothing, maybe it's some you know, nutrition pack or a little water bottle, it can become very heavy. Runners, therefore, try to use the very lightest equipment that they can find. You know, if a pair of shoes might weigh two ounces less, which may not seem like much, over the course of 55,000 to 65,000 steps in a race, in a marathon, those two ounces of extra weight can become the difference between victory and defeat. It can become the difference between having just a little bit more energy so that you can go a little bit faster and maybe pass that runner that's in front of you. And so the author, I think, takes these ideas and he applies them to the race of the Christian life. How often does our sin weigh us down? If we're running, how often does our sin weigh us down? I think all too often we can carry about sin and unknowingly become accustomed to its weight and not realize that we could have greater freedom apart from it. A number of years ago, uh, I realized that when I stepped on the scale, I didn't see a number that I liked. And I thought, I need to, need to kind of shed a few pounds. And I was running at the time. I was regularly exercising. And so I ended up losing about 20, 25 pounds. It wasn't altruistic. I needed to qualify for a better life insurance rate. And so my wife was like, you need to get us this policy, so you better stop eating. (laughs) So I was like, okay. So I lost 25 pounds. Without trying, I didn't feel like I increased my effort. I didn't feel like I tried harder, but an entire minute came off of my average run time. In other words, instead of running a mile in eight and a half minutes, without even trying, all of a sudden it went down to seven and a half minutes. And I thought huh, how did that happen? And I finally figured out, hey, dummy, it's because you lost 25 pounds. That's a lot of extra weight when you start counting it step by step and you start to run three miles. All of a sudden, it can slow you down. What sins are we carrying around with us that we don't take note of that are slowing us down? In his book, Respectable Sins, author Jerry Bridges catalogs a number of sins that are quite common and most of us ignore. He lists among them anxiety, discontentment, unthankfulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, anger, judgmentalism, worldliness, sins of the tongue. Obviously, I can't explore every single one of these sins, but maybe we can reflect upon a few of them 
to see how we may not realize what we're doing, and this might be the sin that is weighing us down that is keeping us from running well. How many of us give in to anxiety and we spend much of our days and our waking moments or perhaps even our sleeping moments filled with worries? You know, we live in the information age where we regularly get uh, overloaded with things that give us concern and worry. You know, think of the biblical phrase, wars and rumors of wars. Those are certainly in the air. You know, it's kind of like, hey, great, the virus is over. Okay, now World War III. Let's put that one up on the plate, right? You know, fears about illnesses. It's in the press. Oh, no, here comes another wave of COVID. And Dr. Fauci's up there. I guess he doesn't want to go away yet because he's like, oh, we could have more lockdowns. And I say, oh, please, no. <laughs> I don't know, just go away. Go play golf. Rising inflation, you know, are we going to be able to afford the things that we could afford? You pull up to the gas pump, and that's an immediate source of anxiety. You know, gas all of a sudden has is, is, is increased by, what, 50% or more. You know, everywhere we turn, there's something to produce and give us anxieties and fears. It's like my daughter was watching a television show, and she was with uh, my, uh, my in-laws, with her brothers, and, and then we came back from our dinner uh, the wife and I did, and, and she was in tears. And I was like, what's the matter? She's like, I'm scared. I'm like, well, what are you scared of? Well, what I saw on TV. Well, what on earth did you see on TV? And I'm looking at my in-laws, what have you done? <laughs> and, uh, and she said, through tears and blubbering, she said, I'm, I'm scared of black holes. <laughs> it's like, black holes? What do you mean black holes? I didn't know that there were black holes, she said. And they could suck us up and, and suck up the earth. That was a very long conversation about, look, the Lord's in control, and there's no black hole that's going to swallow up the world, okay? It's not going to happen. She all of a sudden was filled with anxieties and fears because of something, new piece of information that came across the television. So because so many people worry, and because so many things pile in on us that might be sources of anxiety, do we carry about sinful anxieties? Is this a sin that weighs us down? What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 12? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet these lilies in all of their glory are more splendorously arrayed than Solomon in all his glory, and yet they do nothing, and yet they are beautiful. What does Jesus counsel us to do, but not to worry about what we will eat or what we will drink or perhaps if I adapt it for our, common, you know, our context, uh, how much we might pay at the pump. And to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and God will give us all of these things. He will provide for us. What about pride? I think few people like prideful and arrogant people. But if we ourselves are a prideful tree in a culture that is filled with a forest of prideful trees... Maybe we're not so easily able to identify our, our own sinful pride. We might not think we're prideful because so many other people boast, but do we boast about our possessions, our children, our wealth, our achievements? Moreover, these days, I think there's so much pride on display, whether on social media, for example, that our own prideful behavior might look completely 
ordinary and not in any way out of place because in the simplest of terms, everybody else is doing it. So when we do it, it doesn't look like we're being all that different. And yet, what does Paul teach us? In 2 Corinthians ten seventeen, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, the next time we have that inclination to maybe want to say something about what we've accomplished or what our children have accomplished or something that we have, maybe we should say, hmm, can I instead say, I want to boast in the Lord. Turn the attention to him rather than to me. What about worldliness, one of the other respectable sins that Jerry Bridges talks about? I was recently reading a book by a noted historian Barbara Tuckman, uh, The March of Folly, and where she chronicles uh, various foolish events in history and how people involved in these events uh, have they ignored multiple warning signs and nevertheless plowed on uh, into disaster whether it was the Trojan horse at Sparta. You know, you would have thought that the the Spartans would have said, maybe we shouldn't bring this thing in here. Maybe we should crack it open first. Maybe we should light it on fire. Why would we take a gift from our enemies? All sorts of reasons and all sorts of things, and yet they brought it inside the city walls. The British loss of the American colonies, the Vietnam War. But one of the most fascinating sections of the book that she has is on the Protestant Reformation. In other words, why was it that the Roman Catholic Church ignored all sorts of warnings, and because they became corrupt, it ultimately gave birth to the Protestant Reformation because people finally were fed up and had enough of the corruption in the church. What causes, what does she place her finger on to say that this is why the the church failed at that particular point in history, why it was a march of folly? She says about the Roman church at that point in history, their attitudes, speaking of the papacy, to power and their resulting behavior were shaped to an unusual degree by the mores and conditions of their time and their surroundings. Their grotesque extravagance and fixation on personal gain was a second and equal governing factor. In the simplest of terms, the church had become all too much like the world. Instead of being Christ-like and humble, there was only a concern for personal gain, for personal wealth, for retaining and maintaining a grip on power. So they became just like any other ordinary empire, ruled not by Christ, but ruled by avarice, ruled by might, ruled by the clenched fist. They became worldly. Are we becoming worldly? Do we even notice it? What does God teach us in his word through Paul? Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We need to ask ourselves, because of what the author here says, is are there those sins that we are unaware of, that are weighing us down, that are impeding our stride? that are impeding our speed, that are impeding our progress in the race of the Christian life. But we mustn't think 
that running the race of the Christian life is something that we have to do and must do and can only do under our own steam. And this brings us to our third and final point, is that we have to recognize that we have to run the race looking to Jesus. The only way that we can successfully run the race is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And here the author says this in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When it comes to running a race, you have to make sure you're running in the right direction. You know, one of the biggest surprises to me when I ran my first triathlon is that when I would practice in the pool, I had no problems because I just followed the little line on the bottom of the pool and I knew I was swimming straight. And I didn't know this until I did my first race, is that when you're pulling, you're often pulling more powerfully with one limb than the other, and it pulls you off course. So I was swimming in the ocean. I'd never swum in the open ocean like that before. And I thought, I better look to see where I'm going because I'm not sure if I'm on course. And I looked up, and I was about 20 yards away from the buoy in the wrong direction. And I realized that as I swam, I thought, I guess I'm getting pulled off course. So I had to literally turn perpendicular, swim back to get back on course. And then as I swam, about every three to five strokes, I would pull my head up to make sure I was on course and that I wouldn't drift away. When it comes to running the Christian race, the life of the Christian, or sorry, the race of the Christian life, we have to do that regular check. Am I Pull our heads up. Am I looking to Christ by faith? Am I looking to him for strength? Am I looking to him for his grace? Am I looking to him for his mercy so that he would fill me with the power, with the ability, with his grace that I might run the race well? Because when you're running a race, fatigue sets in. Your muscles ache. Your lungs burn you, you get out of breath, you're trying to catch your, some air, sweat pours down your face, but you willingly undergo this pain for the sake of crossing the finish line. Such is the nature of Christ's life and death. He endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that was set before him. That is the prospects of redeeming you. That's why he was willing to undergo the suffering and the shame. And it was the hope of this joy of redeeming all of us that led him to despise the shame. He looked down upon, he says, I will not let this shame shape my life. Because what should shape my life more is my desire to obey my father so that I can redeem my bride, my church. And so he ultimately looked forward not only to redeeming us, but to the resurrection and to his royal session at the Father's right hand. And so what the author is saying is he's saying, look to Jesus who ran the race well, and note this, who ran the race in our place, so that when we look to him by faith, he gives to us the strength to enable us to run the race. This is why he says there in verse two in the first part, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
or to put it this way in the King James, the author and finisher of our faith. In other words, beloved in Christ, it's only by faith in Jesus that we can and will finish this race. It's not one that we run in our own strength, but rather it's one that we run in the strength of Christ our Savior. So beloved, as as you look to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith, know that he has saved you and that he will save you yet. And in the knowledge of Christ's finished work for you, run your race well. Cast off the sins that weigh you down. Lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely so that we can run the race with endurance that God has set before us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful for your love and your mercy that you have shown us in Christ. Oh Lord, sometimes as we run this race, our arms are drooping, our pace is slow, we're shuffling along, and it's because we're trying to run the race in our own power. And not only do we try to run it in our own power, but we are weighted down by besetting sins. Sometimes, O oh Lord, they may be those sins that we know about and we know that we need to repent of. But sometimes they can be those respectable sins, O oh Lord, those sins that are so prevalent that we don't see them in ourselves. Help us to examine our lives in the light of your word and conform us more to the image of Christ. Enable us to cast off those sins that weigh us down, that we might run the race well, that we would be fleet-footed, that we would, you would fill us with endurance, that you would enable us by faith to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that when we cross that finish line, O oh Lord, whenever it might be, whether upon our death or upon Christ's return, that you would... Come to us, O Lord, and tell us, well done, good and faithful servant, that we would listen to the faith of the saints that are gathered about the arena of the creation as they praise and sing forth your uh, your worship before all that you do in redeeming us, and that we would hear their voices through the ears of faith, and that it would fill us with courage, that we would be willing to endure even danger, that we would persevere, O Lord, unto your glory. Glorify yourself in our midst and in our lives. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.